0: This morning we are continuing our Lenten sermon series on the probing questions of Jesus. And the gospel lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I invite you now to listen once again for the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table And a woman from the city, who was a sinner, having learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Then she continued, kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him; that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, "Simon, I have something to say to you." Teacher, he replied, "Speak." A certain creditor had two debtors; one owed him five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. When neither of them could pay. He canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Hence, she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The problem of having eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear is a common and significant biblical motif that is, at its core, a problem of human stubbornness. What we possess in capacity, we lack in inclination the potential freedom our senses could provide is instead often left imprisoned by our own prejudice and fear. Throughout his ministry, Jesus restores sight to many people who suffer from blindness, the kind of miracle that would awe us today the way that it awed people in the ancient world. But for Jesus, making people's eyes work again was the easy part. The hard part was changing how people understood what they saw with those eyes. Our tendency to look dismissively or with hostility on others has provided ample material for prophets and poets from the ancient world to the present day. We have eyes that see, but we look past people. We have ears that hear, but we ignore what people have to say. It is as the Grateful Dead put it, In their 1970 song, Casey Jones, Trouble with you is the trouble with me. Got two good eyes, but you still don't see. In their 1968 hit, The Boxer, Simon and Garfunkel lament that a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And in his 1962 classic, Blowing in the Wind, Bob Dylan wonders, among other things, how many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? How many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? In our text this morning, Jesus' question, do you see this woman, is not a question of ability. It's a question of willingness. The problem is not vision per se. Simon's pupils and retinas and optic nerve are working just fine but the meaning his brain is making from the data his eyes are taking in, that's where Jesus directs his question. The story begins in the home of Simon the Pharisee who has invited Jesus over for dinner. None of the initial pleasantries that we might expect at a dinner party are mentioned in the text. These days, if we were hosting a dinner party and someone arrived at our home, we would say, come in, let me take your coat. Please have a seat on the sofa. Can I offer you a glass of wine? red or white in those days it would have been mwah here's a kiss in welcome let me wash your feet may i offer you some oil for your head would you like regular or extra virgin dinner parties today seem to have much better amenities if you ask me now as jesus's rebuke later in the text reveals simon apparently didn't offer any of these pleasantries to jesus It seems as if Simon thought that he was doing Jesus a favor by having him over for dinner, graciously granting Jesus the opportunity to be associated with rich and powerful Pharisees. Jesus wasn't exactly the guest of honor at this dinner. But as he so often does, Jesus flips the script as the story unfolds, and it is Simon who would be left transformed by the evening, as the subtle preservation of his proper name with this text suggests. Now, the story moves immediately to the appearance of a sinful woman from the city. She appears on the scene and positions herself at Jesus' feet, weeping and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, though the text repeatedly refers to her as a sinful woman, it does not specifically say she was a prostitute as interpreters often assume. All we know about her is that she's sinful. And to assume that she's a prostitute is to unnecessarily associate her with sexual sin by default, which, of course, is something that's unfairly done to women to this day. But perhaps more importantly still, to assume that she is a prostitute is to distance her from us, right? Because while few of us are prostitutes, all of us are sinners, We just tend to be a little more prideful of our sins, and so it's hard for us to imagine ourselves exhibiting the kind of frantic remorse that she is exhibiting in this text for her sins, whatever they are, remorse that causes her to fall desperately at Jesus' feet, which is the safest place for sinners. Simon responds to the situation with cold indifference to the plight of her life. This pitiful sight causes his upper lip to stiffen. And he seems to use the occasion to confirm his pre-existing conviction that Jesus is not a real prophet, after all, just as he suspected. For a man of God would not allow such a sinner to touch him. And it's here that Jesus speaks up, challenging Simon and pointing out that those who have been forgiven are more likely to be grateful And then he turns to the woman and asks Simon the probing question that we all must consider this morning. Do you see this woman? Do you see her? With this question, Jesus challenges all of us to ponder the ways in which we see other people. Now, over time, people tend to show their true colors, right? In general, the more time we spend with people the better we come to understand who they really are, for better or worse. It's hard to fake who we are the longer we have to do it. Most people are good judges of character, given enough time. First impressions, though, are another story. As much as we all might like to think that we possess psychic foresight or sage wisdom when it comes to our first impressions of others, Chances are we can all think of an instance in our lives when our first impression of someone has turned out to be completely wrong. In reality, we respond instinctively to people as we behold them for the first time. We categorize what we see based on our previous or existing impressions of similar-looking people. We tend to gauge our impressions on the initial outward appearance of others. This is why I was taught to always make a good first impression, right? I should stand up straight, keep a firm handshake and hold eye contact, and smile enough so people know I'm a friendly guy. Studies have demonstrated that a bad first impression can take a long time to undo because our minds are quick to form these firm initial evaluations of others. First impressions are powerful because we take in an enormous amount of data through our eyes, much more than we ever become consciously aware of. And in an effort to make sense of all the stimuli in the world around us, our brains tend to immediately categorize what we see in an outward appearance into pre-existing categories of good or bad, useful or useless, safe or dangerous. It all happens in the name of efficiency, and it usually works to our advantage with inanimate objects, which are mostly predictable. But when it comes to our snap evaluations of human beings, our eyes can lead us astray. People are not always who they seem to be initially. Our survival instincts are always trying to alert us as to when we need to keep our defenses up or when we can let our guards down. And fear can be quick to sweep over us as a kind of default reaction. But we can override these instincts by making an intentional effort to approach people with openness, to see people with openness. There's much important discussion going on in our society today about structural and systemic racism in our country. And studies in psychology have repeatedly demonstrated a preference for white faces, and a fear of dark faces, not necessarily on the level of conscious mental deliberation, but rather at the level of our snap initial impressions before the reasoning of our minds kicks in. These studies reveal an inherent bias that has been socialized into the very fabric of our culture a lingering poison from the sin of slavery and the fear that undergirded that institution and allowed it to last for so many years. Now, to acknowledge the existence of racial bias in the structures and systems in our society is not to say that everyone is racist, but it does mean that it's not enough to simply not espouse racist views ourselves. We have to go further than that. We have to be actively anti-racist. All of us who are concerned with eradicating racism must first become aware of the subtle biases that prompt our first impressions and our snap initial judgments. Once we know and accept this truth, then the truth can begin to set us free. When Jesus asks Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus is critiquing his first impression of her. You see, Simon has a bias programmed into him that says women like her should not be tolerated. The righteous don't associate with sinners, and she is a sinner, he decides immediately. Simon doesn't see all of the things that Jesus goes on to reveal to him in this text. He doesn't see the love this woman feels in her heart for the one who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't see the brokenness of the sinner the emotional toll that sin takes on a soul. He doesn't see her bold assertiveness in crashing the party. He doesn't see her humility in bowing before the word made flesh. All Simon sees is the nuisance of the interruption and a person different and detestable enough from himself that he wants to disassociate from her. Jesus, on the other hand, sees far more in her. Jesus sees her pain and her brokenness. He sees her love and her passion. He sees the wounds of rejection and marginalization. He sees her courage and her agency, her power. While the Pharisee relies on the snap judgment of outward appearance, Jesus is the lover of souls. And when Jesus asks Simon, do you see this woman? He is asking him, will you change the way you see this woman? to the way I see her." It is the task of the Christian to take on the mind of Christ, as the Apostle Paul writes. And taking on the mind of Christ begins with taking on the sight of Christ. It means we must discipline our minds not to allow our first impressions to dictate the way that we approach other people, but instead to see in those we might be inclined to dismiss or fear the unsurpassing worth that Jesus sees in them. A few years ago, I boarded a flight from South Africa back to Pittsburgh. This was when Sunil and I were dating, and I had gone to see her. And a few hours into the flight, as most people were beginning to doze off, I noticed a man walking up and down in circles, the two aisles on the wide-body 777 jet. The man was wearing a head covering, And he had a long beard and long garments. And he was muttering to himself the whole time. And finally he disappeared into the back of the plane. Now, as much as I would like to believe that I am not prejudiced, and as much as I would like to declare myself free from the bias of stereotypes, I must confess to you that I felt anxious in that moment. I didn't want to admit it to myself at first, but the fear I felt preceded the rebuke of my own conscience. Later, I walked nervously to the back of the plane to use the bathroom, and I found the man there holding what must have been a prayer book. And he was bowing and muttering repeatedly to himself. You see, he simply turned out to be a devoutly religious man. And yet my first reaction to him had been one of fear. And on one level, this isn't surprising because in the 20 years since 9-11, our culture has become infused with suspicion and fear. Why should I have thought myself immune from the very waters I swim in as an American? As I returned to my seat, I was quite bothered by the reaction I'd had to this man. And as I shook my head and wondered what was going on inside my mind, it became a moment when Jesus could teach me the way that he taught Simon the Pharisee. Brian, I have something to say to you. Do you see this man? Do you see him? I needed new eyes, eyes that could see, eyes that allowed the mind of Christ to interpret the data my eyes took in. Eventually, we landed in Amsterdam and I walked to the gate for my next flight, feeling good about the lesson I'd learned. And as if to wink at me from heaven, despite the hundreds of connections a person can make in Amsterdam, who else would be on my next flight than the same man who walked about muttering and bowing for most of that flight as well? It was as if God wanted to be sure I had learned my lesson. What did Simon the Pharisee fear at dinner that night? As the sinful woman crashed his party. The tarnishing of his good name? Maybe, but perhaps most of all, Simon feared that the arrival of this woman on the scene would challenge him to see the other in a new way. A challenge that is always hard, because growing into the likeness of Christ is not easy, and at times it's scary. But if we receive Jesus' question with open hearts, we have an opportunity to see with new eyes. The sinful woman loved Jesus because she knew how completely and deeply she had been forgiven. May we too be aware of how deeply and completely we have been forgiven. And may the knowledge that we are greatly loved cast out our suspicious fears of others. For indeed, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. But also by extension then, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. So may it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.